Hi, I'm David Naiman, the host of the radio show and podcast Between the Covers. People are often surprised to learn that this is not my day job, that I don't get paid. But that's not why I'm here today. I'm not here to ask you for an income. Up until now, hosting the podcast has involved only nominal fees, but the podcast has seen explosive growth this year. Listenership has quadrupled in less than 10 months. And these once nominal fees have grown to many hundreds of dollars, which could easily become thousands next year and which I'm paying myself. So I'm here today talking to you in the hope of creating a sustainable model for me to nurture the podcast success. If you value these interviews, whether with great fiction writers such as George Saunders, Laurie Moore, or Juno Diaz, science fiction icons Ursula K. Le Guin, William Gibson, and Neil Stevenson, or genre-bending essayists and poets such as Claudia Rankine, Maggie Nelson, and Mary Rufel, I hope you'll become a patron of Between the Covers. Your per-episode contribution would be your way to participate in the show's long-term health. Please take a moment and either go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com slash between the covers or to david com slash support and give your support and enjoy today's program between the covers is brought to you in part through the support of propeller a magazine of books music art film and life and its publishing imprint propeller books visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint-rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still, and you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to, like, put their fingers in the wounds in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is poet, essayist, editor, teacher, and radio host Brian Blanchfield. Blanchfield is the author of the two poetry collections, Not Even Then, and A Several World. A Several World won the 2014 James Laughlin Award from the Academy of American Poets, as well as being longlisted for the National Book Award in Poetry. Blanchfield's writing has appeared in Harper's, The Nation, The Paris Review, Conjunctions, Guernica, and Story Quarterly, among others. And since 2010, he's been the poetry editor at Fence Magazine, and since last fall has been the Penn Poetry Series guest editor. Blanchfield also teaches poetry and nonfiction at the University of Arizona and produces and hosts the poetry and music show Speedway and Swan on KXCI in Tucson. He's here today on Between the Covers to talk about his third book entitled Proxies, Essays Near Knowing, a book he describes as part cultural close reading, part dicey autobiography. Eileen Miles calls it a sexy book, Wayne Kostenbaum says its sentences are modern marvels. 
Claudia Rankin calls proxies interrogative, unsettling, and brilliant. And Maggie Nelson says proxies raises the bar on what is possible in the realm of creative nonfiction, that she knows no book like it, nor any recent books as thoroughly good in art or in heart. Welcome to Between the Covers, Brian Blanchfield. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. So I think Maggie Nelson is right that Mm -hmm. this book sets its own terms. It's its own singular universe. And part of that, I think, is because you actually literally set some terms, some constraints for proxies. So I'd love to talk about your two constraints to start out the show. The first one is you decided to write the essays without any um, ability. You constrain yourself without access to any authoritative texts, without access to the Internet or to books that you might refer to. Um, how did you arrive at this constraint, and, and what do you see as the purpose of it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, so um, there's, a, there's a total suppression of access to outside authority, um, to secondary sources, to authoritative sources. And I guess that there's a kind of um, um, non-academic uh, sort of oomph behind that, um, a kind of faith that, that, uh, that there is in election and essaying outside of academia. Um, how I arrived at it was, uh, really kind of by chance. I mean, I'm a poet, um, mostly and before, um, the last year or two exclusively a poet. And, um, I was having a difficult time finishing the um, the poems in my second book, Several World. And I really started this project as a kind of prompt into language in the, in, in the morning um, to have the internet off and to write what I knew or estimated or remembered or misremembered about one topic at a time. Um, there's a real miscellany in this book, as you know. I mean, there's uh, some of the early essays back then so this would have been 2009, 2010, were on Br'er Rabbit, um, on Sardines, The Hiding Game, on Owls, that was the very first one, um, on, um, let's see, on containment, on, on, on different topics, on foot washing. Um, and I think that there was, a, there was a, another um, urge that I was beginning to feel, which is, in my mid-30s, going into my late 30s then, um, I also sort of wanted to, to say what I knew, um, mm. which is, um, I don't know, something that was not available to me in the same way in poetry. And behind that urge was a kind of, um, I guess, a sort of um, psychological integrative urge. I wanted to say what I knew not only as a, quote, and you can't see on the radio air quotes, um, queer intellectual poet, but also as the son of a truck driver and a primitive Baptist from central Piedmont, North Carolina, as someone who, as a professor, uh, has been uh, on the margins of and absorbed by and expelled by academia over the years. I wanted to say what I knew in a number of different subject positions, which um, many people or, or, or some readers might... might um, perceive as unlikely subject positions. And I wanted, I guess I, there was a kind of integrative urge that, that people have often yeah. in, in midlife. So, it, you know, um, the, it could well be this is a, a, a sort of version of, a, of, a, of an early midlife 
crisis. Um, I prefer the term reckoning. Um, it seemed like a kind of a, um, a, a moment for, for reckoning. And what do you see the, you have rolling endnotes at the end called mm-hmm. corrections where mm-hmm. you literally correct some of the errors of memory or, or other errors of, of potentially misperception. Yeah. How do you see that, those uh, rolling endnotes in relationship to this desire to tell what you know? Yeah, those, that's been maybe the most fun part of this book. Um, it's called Correction. It's a 21 or 22 page rolling endnote, as you say in which fact after fact, um, and as briefly as possible, um, uh, with, with some permission for some style, um, within it, um, I, I redress the errors that I make along the way on my own authority. Uh, I get a lot of things wrong and, and also, um, suppose a lot and speculate a lot. And so fact after fact at the end, whether it's about, you know, what Donald Winnicott actually said about tickling or um, what the actual use of the foyer was originally <laughs> or um, uh, how Roland Barthes um, died um, uh, struck by a laundry van in 1980 um, while he was giving his last, uh, his last seminar um, uh, in Paris. Um, fact after fact, um, Juice Newton did not sing the song Tumbleweed Sylvia did instead. Right. So um, there's a kind of jumble and sort of miscellany toward the, you know, in that last piece, which in a way is the, is the 25th essay in this in this book, and is also kind of um, also sort of an index for the for the miscellany that I am. Um, mm-hmm. You know, um, I, there's a there's a piece of me that the the the, the graduate of uh, of the of my primitive Baptist faith as a kid who appreciates. Um, pushing against what happens after the reckoning. So there's a kind of afterlife of facts is how I like to think of it Mm. at the end where nothing is wrong. um, And yet there's a kind of, um, there's an indexical relationship to me. There's a little, there's a little biography after the autobiography. I I like that way of putting it. Thanks. And there's a second interesting counterpoint, a second uh, constraint that you set for yourself in proxies also to stay with, to stay with the subject at hand, mm-hmm. and uh, tell me if I'm phrasing this wrong, but stay with the subject at hand until you feel unsettled in, in some way, till you get to a place of dynamic vulnerability, perhaps. Thanks, yeah. Yeah, that's right. The, the, so the second, um, the second constraint um, occurred to me soon after the first one. In fact, I think in a way it's a byproduct of the first one. I'm interested in, in continuing to think about how they're related. But yeah, the, I, the, the topic whatever it happened to be, um, frittage, uh, the sex act, dossiers, um, abstraction, confoundedness, the leave and billiards. I chose knowing that there was some hot material in it for me, um, that somewhere within there um, I would discover a kind of um, uh, personally vulnerable terrain and, and and, and the prompt or the invitation to, to myself was to, was to stand there and kind of continue to unpack hmm. from there. You, you've said in an interview before that Baudelaire's definition of beauty was misfortune exteriorized. Hmm. And I wondered about that in relation to the second constraint, wh- whether maybe the destination was that sort of beauty uh, of, of personal vulnerability. Yeah. 
Wow, that's really interesting. Um, it makes me think of uh, something my therapist said. She's um, uh, she's Italian by birth and has Greek heritage, and she uh, I'm trying to think she 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 quoted for me her English translation of her favorite Italian translation of um, the Odyssey, in which at the end Odysseus returns. I think she says, um, "Splendid with." Uh, splendid with something and failure. Um, there's something about being splendid with. Um, I'm, I'm botching that quote, which is really lovely. Um, but, but misfortune exteriorizes as though you could, um, um, you could, you could visually apprehend where someone has been and what, um, what's befallen them, um, is interesting to me in relationship to these essays. I also pictured you have the so you have these titles on sardines on house sitting, mm-hmm. but you have the same subtitle for everyone. Yeah. Uh, permitting shame, error, and guilt. Myself, the single source. I imagined you sitting at a computer with mm-hmm. that phrase like taped across the top. Is is that is that? Yeah. The f- the very first one of these I wrote. I was in um, the Los Feliz Public Library in Los Angeles, and my boyfriend and I had an argument. And I, um, I didn't storm off, but I went off for the day. Um, I had very little money. I was using his old laptop, um, which I think even had a sort of dial-up uh, sort of internet connection. And I went to the Los Feliz Library, and there wasn't Wi-Fi there anyway. And so I sat in a hard carol, and um, and you know was in a writing mood. And that's what I did. I I'm, I kind of put the topic at the top of the page, and then came up with some version of this um, subtitle, which I didn't know was a subtitle, but would be kind of a banner, a prompt, permitting shame, error, and guilt, myself the single source. Um, and, you know, and, and, and permission, permitting was a kind of a key word in that, to, 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 um, um, to explore something um, with, a, with a permission to myself, um, uh, to, to explore what was sensitive within that to me. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to Brian Branchfield about his essay collection, Proxies, Essays Near Knowing. Are, are, is there a, a conversation going on with any um, predecessors or influences in the essay world? The ones that I thought of mm-hmm. were mostly signif- um, signified by the, the repetition of title. For instance, Francis Bacon or Montaigne's mm-hmm. essays all have a similar form, like of this or of that, or and here we that. have on this mm-hmm. or on right. that. Mm-hmm. Is are there any that you are um, that you feel like some of these constraints come from, or do you feel like they they truly just arose out of your own personal? Oh experience? no no no! There's for sure. I mean, there there's a kind of there was something that felt very original um, to that. Um, that time for me in this project, but no, there's um, several traditions I think that I'm borrowing from. One for sure is Montaigne's, um, and even I would say among writers, um, you know, in the 250 years or so um, around his uh, lifespan, uh, Sir Thomas Brown also, and mm-hmm. a, a kind of something about. Um, Brown's uh, kind of fussy, corrective um, uh, essaying in uh, in uh, what's it called? Um, 
inquiries into vulgar and common errors. Oh, that's pseudodoxia, a great I think, or pseudodoxia epidemica, um, which is a wonderful book, um, mm. really stylized, uh, in which he's, um, you know, disabusing dear reader of. Uh, a false notion that, for instance, pelicans feed their brood by nibbling, the mother pelican nibbling from her own breast and feeding the blood to the to the to the young. He disabuses that and and writes little essayettes um, about um, what's true instead and and how the error um, has come to be. How, how the how the false knowledge is going to be? There's he's just one of the best stylists in in English, um, uh, but then also equally kind of empirical um, or empiricist. I never I never know which of the two words to choose, um, and I know they have different meanings. But but another writer like Montaigne and to some extent Brown around that era is um, Gilbert White, the mm. sort of first naturalist. Mm-hmm. Gilbert White of Salborn. Um, so. All of them writing from from not research, but rather um, attention to the thing. Um, um, expert in, for in Montaigne's case, friendship or Virgil or or what have you, um, by by being present to and thinking through the topic. You know, I think that was. Um, that was true for those skeptic writers, those early essayists. Um, so that's for sure one one tradition, the mm. oldest tradition. Um, but there are others, you know, that are that are equally important to me, um, if not more important, including a kind of um, uh, a semiotic uh, cultural studies tradition that, for me, kind of begins with Roland Barthes' mythologies and and Empire of the Signs. Um, and sort of reads one text after another, unpacking uh, how it means and how it functions in culture, um, and and plenty of scions in his in his tradition now are some of my favorite writers: hmm. Wayne Kestenbaum, Chris Krause, um, a wonderful art writer and novelist, um, Maggie Nelson. I think uh, is in that tradition as well and expanding it significantly. Um, Hilton Alls, I think, mm-hmm. um, white girls uh, and the women. Um, a number of Adam Phillips to 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 circle back to to writers who use that preposition on kissing, tickling, and being bored is one of my favorite <laughs> books. And so is Alison. That's a Beck. good title. It's great. It's such he's he's like he's one of those writers who, you know, you could choose Lauren Isley or other writers who who have a discipline, a science, but who are just um, ingenious writers and and. Their expertise um, has little to do with um, their research expertise. It's really about attending to the thing at hand and, yeah. and thinking through it. Well, let's have our our listeners hear one of the essays um, we had discussed on containment. Um, maybe you can just do a brief introduction of what what led you to write write on containment. Oh, sure. Okay. If you want to, or we can just hear it hear it without it. Um, yeah, maybe I won't say anything about it beforehand. Um, okay, great. Except that what I've learned that I like to do, I don't know if it's um, useful or not, 
is to read from the relevant portions of correction first. So okay. I'll read. I'll read the, the. So these are things that have that later on you realized were were errors of sorts. That's right. These are these were um, these are corrections of errors that occur in that essay. So this is from the correction. The risk and tickling past the point of pleasure is for Adam Phillips the child's hysteria, humiliation, and intensely anguished confusion. He makes no extrapolation from the experience of disarray and being tickled to, the, to other corollary fears of uncontainability. But from a comparative study of phobias, he derives a kind of two-degree structure of fear in First Hates, a later essay in On Tickling, Kissing, and Being Bored. The tickling narrative, unlike the sex narrative, has no climax. The term proprioception, likewise the term interoception, was coined by English neurophysiologist Charles Scott Sherrington in 1905. Lear, what, so young and so untender? Cordelia, so young, my lord, and true. Lear, let it be so, thy truth then be thy dower. Here I disclaim all my paternal care, propinquity, and property of blood, and as a stranger to my heart and me, hold thee from this forever. On containment, permitting shame, error, and guilt, myself the single source. A few things became clear in the moments and months after I was attacked by a dog at age nine. Within months, it was clear that my consequent fear of dogs had engaged a far greater fear. Within moments, it was clear that the dog, our dog, Sam, was my father's dog, loyal to him foremost. Sam, a mature, blue-black, purebred chow, rushed to the door one evening just as I did to meet my father who had been away a while. My mother was in the kitchen. We had just moved back to Charlotte from Paris, Tennessee, undoing the relocation we had all made when he left Roadway to work for Transcon nine months earlier. He was sort of at large still, out on days-long interstate truck runs and still stationed in Tennessee without us, orchestrating the sale of the life that never quite took. The tractor-trailer he parked outside shook the Charlotte house a bit. At the back door, his dog and his son had both come to welcome him, and when he appeared there, Sam turned to his rival in the tight space of the mudroom, and in a single motion, prefaced by a low growl, seized and ripped the flesh off the right side of my face, cheek to jawbone, so that in the stunned minutes thereafter, both of my parents would later say they could see my clenched back teeth when my mouth was closed. Sam was banished instantly to the back lot, or retreated there ashamed, confused, and swiftly we made preparations to ride to the emergency room. Despite spilling blood and saliva where my face had been, I was numb to the pain, doing as I was instructed, completely mobile, cooperative with the towels, functioning in shock. On my father's lap, so rarely availed to me, in the passenger seat, as my mother drove, I was prevented from flipping the visor down to see the damage in the mirror, but repeated often that one desire, to see for myself what was clearly disturbing my parents, neither of them even 30 years old, it now occurs to me, the year they divorced. What was the damage was the question, yes, but also, what does it look like inside me? I could hardly contain myself. A plastic surgeon was airlifted in, and that night I had reconstructive surgery and came away sewn up with many stitches inside and outside my mouth. A phenomenal operation, everyone said. 
It was 1982, and with insurance then, I suppose a secretary and a truck driver could afford it. I was swollen and in bandages for weeks, a pathetic, dopey monster at school for a while, and then the wound became scar and for the next eight years tightened and traveled from my cheek to my chin as I grew into the face I have. There were a lot of nerve endings gathered in it, and it drives me a little crazy, distributes a sort of unsettling, illocable energy within when a lover plays with that part of my face. I feel the same about my navel. It's my recollection that the Winnicottian psychologist and essayist Adam Phillips himself extrapolates broadly from his analysis of tickling, but if not, the generality I have found so insightful is mine. Beyond any fear is a greater circumambient fear, a terror that one will be insufficiently able to hold that fear. That if the stimulus is present and ongoing, unchecked, one might fall apart, come to pieces, and her faculties disintegrate. In sustained tickling, we know, we learned, there exists an outer lip or membrane between the simpler immediate excitement of fear and the shameful and complete loss of bodily control and mental composure. That sensible, pleasurable brim of containment is what makes tickling a good study for Winnicott's concept of holding, his determination that healthy child development needs a responsible, aware, caring adult good enough to hold, to stay with, and make room for, and validate, and check a child's pleasures and fears and emotions, and acknowledge even the most confounding of them in the child's independent trials and explorations as inbounds and worth expressing and worth celebrating in their human specificity. Without such a parent, if a parent has diminished capacity or is narcissistic or in trauma or private crisis or absent altogether, protective self-sanctity is a greater necessity sooner and the child's retention of control, for instance, can be acute and maladaptive and difficult to reverse. On into my 20s, I can remember struggling to destroy a kind of metaphysical conviction that disclosure was the enemy of integrity. Proprioception, the term Charles Olson made famous for poetry, is the sense of the body's orientation and balance and weighted proportion of its parts. Knowing I face forward is proprioceptive. Interoception is the sense one has of what is inside him. If I have pain in my urethra from dehydration, or if my heart skips a beat, it is interoceptive sensitivity that detects it. A friend of mine who recently confided to me that he's tested HIV positive described how he knew the flu symptoms he had in November were more than the flu. He knew something was different inside. He said he even knew the moment, weeks after contracting the virus, he seroconverted. He described this interoceptive sense as body consciousness, but couldn't say where he felt it. He didn't need to, to make himself understood. Likewise, where is fear or desire or grief if not inside? I know it is within because I contain it. My enabling delusion as a child, essentially, was that affective experience was like a pain in the gut or a lump in the throat. It was something inside yourself that you could choose to hold in. In Charlotte, we shared the neighborhood with a number of large, ferocious dogs. This was true before the bite, and I was wary of them then. But afterward, in my presence, it was as though they were lit up with bloodlust and rage. In particular, there were a pair of German shepherds and a Doberman pincher along my walk to the bus stop. And each morning seemed to be the morning that one would finally vault the fencing that barely kept him in. Naturally, I was terrified of what could happen if any of them got to me, and their threat was utterly convincing. 
Walking in a group was worse because sauntering apace with everyone and even keeping up conversation as we passed, I nonetheless set off the savagery of the animals around us, and it could not be denied. It could not be covered with my pretenses to normalcy. When they charged, it was obvious they were charging me. It was evident their nasty, murderous mania had an object, and I was it. Even today, I feel the need to point out that my performance was flawless. I know I betrayed no trepidation in my mien or manner. I was very good and well-practiced at keeping it in. When an older boy said it aloud, and when I worked out what he meant, I felt my situation grow in dimension. He smells your fear. Early on, you have a secret. It is almost as though the secret is there before you. You are ever in relation to it. You are its container. And because, by definition, the one imperative is that you cannot share the secret, perhaps you develop the understanding that no one in your small world may be entrusted with the knowledge of what's inside you. You become, through and through, a holding environment for the secret. It is so intrinsic that you could not, at so young an age, begin to know how to explore it. How you feel is the secret. Or it is not untrue to say the secret is how you feel. Because when someone asks how you are feeling and you cannot say, you can see them try to access what's inside and it troubles you enough to close tighter or cover more. Your little mastery over it you know to be a life or death matter. It is the end, the very edge of abyss over which you send yourself if the contents are accessed. Then, one day, you wake up to the new reality that walking the same earth you have lived on all these years, growing increasingly proficient as the keeper of your contents, is at least one creature endowed with a singular ability to sense something you are concealing for your life, a creature whose report is loud as a gun. It smells your fear. In its presence, I could not contain myself. Even then, starting then, with new dread, I felt myself. I couldn't have said by what extroversion, but I knew eventually I was coming out. What was that going to look like? At the end of King Lear, a mirror is brought to the face of good Cordelia to be consulted. Lear calls for it, disbelieving the worst. At the beginning of the play, when she tells him that she cannot be wholly devoted to him, that she'll need to divide her devotions in loving herself and her eventual mate as well as her father, the king, he replies that honesty alone will be her dowry then. Honesty is what she is left with, disinherited, a birthright for one entitled to nothing. At his own tragic end, after Cordelia is presented to Lear with the news of her death, the looking glass is brought on his command to her face closer to her mouth. There's a moment, a last viable moment, before the glass is withdrawn, having captured no vapor from what would have been her breath, that the mirror is called a stone. A repurposing happens. The mirror is not a depth into which to view the reflection of one's composed facade, but rather a surface on which to manifest what comes from within. There is only the one conclusive turn in the mortal story, I suppose. Before that one, because of that one, there are a number of opportunities, precisely when one is petrified, to break the glass. You've been listening to Brian Blanchfield read from his essay collection, Proxies, Essays Near Knowing. I just love the, the strange journey you take us on in that, in that, that and all of the essays. 
But the fact that we go from a dog attack to tickling to proprioception and poetry to HIV to fear of dogs and King Lear, um, it ranges widely for a for a essay on containment. If you think if you think about um, it's not very well contained, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it feels like that is an interesting interplay between the title. But another thing that is interesting when you're reading the essays together is the way you feel the conversation across essay. I don't think that's all entirely because they share constraints or entirely because they have the same structure for a title and this in the identical subtitle. Mm -hmm. There's also um, the the repetition of we, us getting little pieces of of you, like something about um, your travails um, in in trying to get a teaching position mm -hmm. or in something around your poetry career or around queer identity mm -hmm. or um, about your family. And uh, every time we we notice another little piece, um, it's interesting that when we come to a question like in containment, you have the two questions, what is the damage and what does it look like inside of me? Mm -hmm. And when when you arrive at those questions having read other essays, those questions feel like they're not contained in on containment. Um, I can ask those questions about hmm. you around your your um, teaching position, search yeah. for teaching positions, or around your queer identity in relationship to your parents. Yeah. Um, yeah. They feel like they, and then it, those questions then echo forward as mm. we progress through mm. the essay collection mm. too. That's great. That pleases me. Um, you know, one of the things I... I feel like I, I was doing with this book was um, teaching myself narrative, teaching myself uh, nonfiction narrative and and even kind of ethics of temporality in a book. So each of these essays retains the present tense of its own ambient situation when I wrote it. Um, I guess that's true. In other words, um, for instance, um, my stepfather is alive in the essay on foot washing. Um, and I don't go back um, later and and revise that to anticipate that he will die in the course of this book. So, so in a way, one of the things that was sort of most moving to me in writing this book um, was, I guess, um, the, the experience of... of having the, the temporality of three and a half or four years in which things happened to me. So I, I couldn't have predicted at the, at the outset which 24 topics I would choose and, and especially where they would um, send me and what work there was within them for me to do. And, um, you know, it's so p peculiar for the, for the poet in me to be reading sometimes uh, giving a reading from this work and 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 to say by this point in the book you know <laughs> about this protagonist me right um, that X has happened or um, you need to know um, is that the key to keeping the essays relatively chronological in terms of when you wrote them to create that sense of a journey of a self I knew about halfway through that that's the that the, the order in which I wrote them would be the order in the book because it, it did feel um, you know, and that, that begins to speak to this other tradition, the, a kind of French tradition or new narrative tradition. I mean, I think of writers like Hervé Guibert or um, 
again, Chris Krause or Dodie Bellamy or Michelle Larry or, or writers for whom kind of um, the diaristic is, um, uh, is sort of subtending the, the book. I mean, we're, we feel like we're turning the pages and turning days as they progress. Mm. Um, I mean, there are other, other traditions and other writers who do that, but, um, but those are the guys I think about. Well, you mentioned that part of this was teaching yourself to write narrative, and it made me curious about um, what you see of yourself when you're writing poetry versus when you're writing narrative. I know there's probably not one answer, and it's it's probably different with any number of, of different enterprises. However, well, you have a poem, for instance, in, in your last collection, Man Roulette, and mm-hmm. then you have an essay on Man Roulette. Yeah. Um, what is the sense of discovery that you would feel that might be different because of the form that is containing it? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I, I think around this, this topic a good deal, and you'd think that I would have um, uh, a fixed certain answer to this by now, but I don't. But I love thinking about, um, for instance, the poem on Man Roulette. Um, the poem is called Man Roulette, and the essay is called On Man Roulette. And... I guess if I'm if I'm thinking about how both of those pieces move, it, you know, it might it might get us nowhere, or it might um, discover something. So in the in the poem, um, it's sort of a four stanza, four part poem, which loosely has a kind of m- metaphor of um, of occupying booths in in, in some kind of um, fair. You know, um, uh, in this booth there is, is room for one. Um, get in here and hold me up is a line from from that poem. Um, and so there's a kind of loose analogy, a kind of world making around um, the the experience, even the private experience for me of um, of visiting or being on manroulette.com, which was a website um, sort of now defunct, although there are other um, copy sites. Um, which it's a sort of speed dating site for men, um, to use a euphemism. Yeah. Uh, in which you you know you're you're um, um, you're clicked past by any number of of men, wherever they are in the world, Milan or Guayaquil, Ecuador. Um, I write about this a little bit in the essay, um, and um, you all have um, the room you're in and the reality you're in. And then the fantasy that you share um, in the text box and in the image box, the, vi- the streaming video. Um, so the poem ends up making kind of a, um, a world outside of that that's, that's guided by the dynamics of, of being on that site and, and dating um, for an evening on that site. And the essay is... Um, as all these essays are, sort of definitive at the beginning. What is it? How does it function? And and paying attention to it until it um, uh, until it reveals for me something else, a secondary subject. Um, and there are any number of essayists who do this. I mean, John McPhee is one, and Claudia Rankin is another. To right. use two extremes. Um, so, so, so it really is kind of a classic essaying of looking at the thing until some greater, um, larger. Um, containing um, secondarity reveals itself, and then to, and then to say um, to to be kind of naked and and vulnerable in that arena. So there, there are two different processes and two different kinds of discovery. Yeah, you know the 
um, the, the poem um, is, is discovering the sort of rules of its own world as it goes and, and creating that and not being fixed about that um, until, you know, very close to the end of, of, the, of the composition process. And the essay is, um, is discovering what else is behind this, um, this sign or this phenomenon hmm. for me. Well, for saying that you hadn't thought about it, you did. <laughs> I was just thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was pretty good. Um, I, speaking of all of this, um, you say in the introduction that the essays might correspond what, to what you might call a self, but mm. that they're not the same thing, and that the book is braver than you are. What does that mean? Hmm. Or, or yeah. Yeah, tell us a little bit about that sentiment. Yeah, I think that I, I wrote that in the in the little uh, prefatory note. Um, to speak behind the title, Proxies, a little bit. Uh, that wasn't always the title of this book. And when I, um, when I hit on it, I really, there's something about it that clicked for me. I like the, um, the false neologism of it. Um, I mean, Proxies is a word with, a, with very specific meanings. And in, in 2016, highly specific meanings um, in, 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 you know, in military meanings and in political um, uh, spheres. Uh, but I kind of liked it as a kind of diminutive form of approximation. Mm. Um, and even... We also mentioned that proxy in science yeah, has a different meaning than right. it does that in common usage, that's that it has right. to do with an allowance for imprecision. Exactly. Yeah. You study something that's more available to you um, rather than, than the subject that you actually want to, to get data from um, because it can be a proxy for that harder to reach subject. Um, so is the, is the book a proxy for this self, uh, uh, Brian Blanchfield, and through the reckoning is braver than the living? I think, you know, I think that's a, that's a, um, that's a sound, uh, <laughs> that a, was a just pop a... <laughs> them there. Yeah, no, that's right. Uh, um, so proxies are not only approximations of the, of the thing, um, foot washing and the leave or the near term or the understory, but yeah, then also sort of these deputy sentries. Um, that's how I kind of came to think about it. Who I, who the author, me sends out sort of ahead of myself, um, to kind of explore areas that I, um, I might not otherwise explore. And the braver than me part is just that. I mean, honestly, dispositionally, I'm a, I'm a circumspect, furtive, shy um, person. And these essays are, um, especially some of them, um, uh, are revealing and, um, and candid, even kind of radically candid about um, sex and sexuality, about, for instance, hiring practices in, in academia. Yeah. Well, let me ask okay. you about that about and revelation, because... There were two journeys that we go on in proxies that felt, I don't know if I can articulate why they felt linked, but I'm curious if they feel linked to you. And mm. one is that of becoming a writer and a teacher of writing. And the other is coming out. Um, they feel linked. And then they're explicitly linked at one point with the first time you come out to a, a group of people is actually <laughs> through reading a poem That's right. to, to the group. Uh, so do they feel linked in, in, in some way to you? I mean, obviously they do because they're you, mm -hmm. but uh, otherwise, do they? 
does coming to be a writer and also a teacher of writer of writing um, have a relationship to coming out and being openly gay and yeah because you you talk about um, not, not now and not yet mm-hmm. and, and in the in um, the contingencies of queer life yeah. that also felt like it resonated with this tenuous life of a, a teacher of poetry in a corporate capitalist society yeah. and, and uh, the ways in which um, things are not on course uh-huh. in the same way that you would think in a heterosexual society and, and a corporate capitalist society. There, there felt like resonances in this book to me around, yeah. around both. That's great. Yeah, you know, that, that essay that you're um, um, uh, quoting from there on frittage, uh, which was um, excerpted in, in Harper's, about half of it published there. Um, and uh, in the other half, that wasn't published in the magazine. There's a, there's a fair amount of thinking about... Um, well, so that essay is, like others, a kind of definitive essay about the sex act. Um, it also then gets me to talk about um, being in New York in the late 90s and, and also growing up under the specter of HIV-AIDS um, the sort of sex that some men and fair number of women were having then. Um, uh, in, in, but then also about queer community. And, and that's, that's the portion that you're, you're talking about. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing in that uh, uh, Jose Munoz's Cruising Utopia, which is a wonderful book, um, which he kind of lays out a theory of, of queer time, queer temporality as being... Um, uh, never instantiated in the here and now, but always not yet and not now. Um, that's 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 a that's a that's a poor paraphrase of of, of what he says there. But um, but there was something about uh, that time and the way in which uh, my generation in New York then was kind of psychosexually inscribed by uh, imprinted by the by the epidemic um that we were finding one another um without much quote-unquote queer tutelage um the generation older than us was traumatized and dying and uh and not there in the same way that um that things in which things might have passed down to us so we were kind of figuring it out for ourselves and that sort of Community and that's that sort of perforce solidarity um, happened to be compatible with a kind of precariat economy, mm-hmm. um, part timing, contract work, adjunct work, um, and queerness um, belonged together at that time. And we, a number of of writers and artists um, who were also teaching and and, and doing editing or whatever. Um, we're uh, we're building community around that and and new sorts of structures of of um, of a family uh, and um, and 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 community. Hmm. Yeah. So those two things are linked for me in, in the world. Um, and I guess the dynamics of of coming out and and also um, and being a writer are linked. Um, and but that's that's a Maybe it's a longer like, kind of that, that takes me longer to, to access. I mean, I wasn't yeah. sure if I was, re- only an hour was reaching for that or whether that was yeah. was there. In it's, the it's in there. Yeah. yeah. Huh. 
I would I don't know if this is a taboo for you, mm-hmm. but I'd imagine it's a taboo for some readers. The the amount you you uh, very plainly expose like how much you you earn in a year yeah. in some of these jobs as a poetry teacher or all of the the horrible machinations around trying to get a teaching position um, yeah. in detail in a way that feels um, a little electric and that's, edgy. Yeah, that's well, that's good. I mean, I yeah, I do. I feel like um, uh, of all the quote unquote transgressions. Um, in this in this book, that that is the taboo that people um, feel and, and want to, to talk about. That essay on dossiers, which is the term for a, a file in academia um, on a candidate, how to make one, what's inside one, where does it go, who reads it, which committee members, which which dean, what happens on a campus visit, um, and what happens in, for instance, um, an inside hire. Etc. Um, people have, have have wanted to talk about that happily, um, and I think I'm I'm I think that essay has been a bit of a, a uh, I don't know what to call it um, a facilitator of, of of conversation that kind of needed to happen, um, and so a number of, of writers who are on the market. And even a number of writers who are on on the other side and, and tenure track or tenured positions um, have uh, expressed, you know, gratitude, mm. and, and have wanted to say, you know, um, I, we all wanted to say, to say that or to, to name that name or or, or name that number, mm. that salary. Um, so um, I'm, you know, it's it's one of the, it's part of my life and part of the project here was to be kind of disinhibited about shame. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of career shame that, that writers have um, in terms around money. So, yeah, I think that was it was important to, to remain vulnerable in that territory, too. Yeah. In case you just tuned in, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today to Brian Blanchfield about his book, Proxies, Essays Near Knowing a Reckoning. You have another another essay. I, I think you can make, I, I think you can make the argument that a lot of these essays could be portals for understanding the the wholeness, almost like they're, um, I don't know if you know Leibniz's monads, that mm-hmm. each one contains the universe. So it's like um, the On Reset, that essay um, about the audition tape, mm-hmm. where you you watch a tape and everything's the same except for the, the main actor. Um, it feels like that loops back to um, how you talk in the introduction about the proxies uh, in proxies, it changed as you changed, as we were talking about in chronology, hmm. but that the uniformity yeah. is what leads to the variation yeah. in a strange way. And there, it felt like on reset was almost became a proxy for the whole project hmm. in You're a way. You're such a good reader, David. This is great. You know, I even think that there was, um, uh, there was a moment, I'm remembering now, that on reset was going to be the kind of introductory essay. I was going to keep it where it was late in the book, but it was still yeah. going to be like an essay about these essays. About proxies. And I, and I decided, you know, not to do that. But but I think in a way, the only thing that's, well, correction is, is in a way a poetic text, but otherwise, the only thing in this book that is poetry or poetic 
for me is is the way in which the essays reset. There's a constraint, which which poets often use, um, and and each of these twenty four essays sort of um, resets and starts again, uh, as though the one before it were a template, and it was going to cycle through with its own new material and and run through the machine again. And there's something in that um, in that operation that feels like um, that feels familiar to me as a poet, as the way a, po- a poet works, stands after stanza or um, unit after unit, and that kind of um, and reset ends up being the the essay on reset ends up being about how poetry works in a way too. Mm. Um, uh, well, I mean, for sure, you as a poet is evident in the syntax too. Uh, it's it's not just in in those concerns. I mean, you can hear it in the language when you're reading on containment. So I wanted to ask you about the the idea of the leave mm. in On the Leave. Yes. Um, maybe you could talk about what the leave is in games and then also how it connects to narrative for you. Sure. Yeah, so the leave um, in, in billiards, if you're shooting pool, is um, the arrangement of however many of the 15 balls are left on the table and in what position um, from the prior shot. That's the leave. You're, you're, you're given the leave um, from uh, either the shot you've just shot and, the, and you've pocketed a ball or from what your opponent has, has left you. Yeah. Yeah. So it seems to suggest that you aren't only entitled to use them but expected to use the leave. Sure. Essentially, sure. Yeah. Like, and and then you have this interest. It's your, it's your given, right? Uh, at the beginning of your of your pl- of your shot, your turn. Yeah, yeah. There's this interesting connection, I think, to that and the way you're using memory or the limitation in proxies to only memory. Mm-hmm. Um, if we think of the memory as the leave, essentially, mm-hmm. of what you're going to, how you're going to play the game with what you're left with, mm-hmm. you've you've eliminated. The access other than what's on the table right. with you. Right. You you say this thing in that essay, it can be very attractive in one's narrative to replace the given with the leave, because if I equate my foundational circumstances with leavings, the discard, the refuse, even the ruins of others, I feel more entitled to use them to build from that rubble. And it that also feels like a nod to um, collaboration. Uh, that all work potentially is collaborative, if we're honest, in a sense with, like when we talk about influences, what is left that we're working sure. with. Um, and I wondered about that. I mean, we I don't know. We have our own sort of bibliography inside our head, right? That I don't know if that's what you were saying in that specific quote, mm-hmm. but um, you've done collaborative art making. Yes. Um, writing poems with other poets. Uh, between dance and writing, mm-hmm. and then the very structure of your radio show. You have a co-host every week. Right. You collaborate on what poems are read and the music that's played, yeah. and half of the show is influenced by this by this other this other poet, right, or writer. And the um, poems and, mu- and the poems and songs are sort of collaborating in a way. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you have a philosophy around collaboration or. I guess one question I would have for you is, do you think people who are drawn to constraints, as you seem to be, uh, are more into collaborative Hmm. art? And if so, why? 
I, I, and I ask also because I think of like, say in the Olipo movement, um, you have tons of, it's uh, by definition constraint-based and mm -hmm. there seems to be a preponderance of collaborative art mm -hmm. being made at the same time. Yeah, interesting. As a constraint itself, the collaboration. Right. Well, people who, who use constraints are probably less interested in a kind of univocal, authoritative, um, subjective uh, kind of writing. They're, they're interested in, um, in having to obviate an obstacle and kind of um, trick themselves into the content of the, the poem or, or what have you to enter into the, in the back door that otherwise you would, you would access politely up the front walk. You know, um, yeah. you get to the same place, but you've, um, uh, but but you've you've discovered um, in a different way um, what's there for you. So, so yeah, I mean, I, and I think collaboration does the same thing. I mean, you've got this um, this active other agent uh, whose um, uh, reactions and responses um, give you your given. Uh, often um, in, in, in your part. Yeah, the, uh, the collaboration with, with dance comes to mind. Uh, a wonderful choreographer uh, who now lives in San Diego, but I knew her in, in Missoula where I taught, um, Anya Cloud. Uh, she and I put together um, these all-day, six-hour um, integrative movement and writing workshops called From A to B and Back Again. Um, I was B and she was A. And, um, you know, and, and poets like Leslie Scalapino, um, um, Sandra Alcosser, a number of, of writers have, um, Jackson McClough famously, um, have collaborated with, with dance. And Anya's um, movement exercises would give us the sort of um, content as writers and our, the results of our prompted writings would, um, would, would motivate the next movement in the piece. And, and I, there, that was, that was the best day of teaching, you know, in my life. I, it was like this, this, uh, it was like a day of adult play for one thing, yeah. but it also, um, it kept discovering itself and it was really exhilarating. And, and that was, um, if you have a collaborator that you really trust, um, uh, you, you, you really, it really is a process of discovery that you couldn't do on your own. You couldn't, um, you couldn't cultivate on your own. You have a, a word in proxies and also in your last poetry collection that I had to look up, elaity. Mm. And I, it seems to be related to reciprocity, um, if not collaboration. Um, could you talk about what elaity is? Oh, um, boy. I mean, um, if yeah. you can, I don't want to put you on the spot. but Yeah. It's, it's, um, it's a word I like because it's a beautiful word. I guess it's so... Um, it is... Uh, it means... Itness or heness. Um, it's like um, the the masculine pronoun in French, il, a, a sort of the noun form of that. Um, and um, I believe um, I'm going to look this up. Sorry, I have it here. Actually, I think it's at least what I looked up. It said signifies the impossibility of initially pronouncing a vow in some kind of reciprocity with the other person. Oh, interesting. I mean, so so the, I have the word from Emmanuel Levinas, uh, and and he I think he meant um, by by itness by elaity, 
um, a kind of um, position of of thirdness or or even God uh, mm-hmm. in um, is this all at all related? You, you've said in multiple interviews that we is not the plural of I, mm-hmm. and I wondered what you meant by that. I like I can I can mm-hmm. project myself into that and come up with yeah. my own meaning, but I, I I wondered about that phrase for you. I don't know if it's related, um, and I didn't say that phrase. Someone else, um, I don't know whom to quote, to quote, but I loved this this little um, aphorism. Um, which is true, gram- you know, gra- grammatically, and also true ethically. Um, so, whenever you're speaking, especially in literature and in poetry in particular, um, there's a kind of obnoxious, unanimous "we." We lost a really great poet last week. Oh, mm-hmm. we did. Who are we? What do you mean? Um, right. Um, to 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 move from the first person pronoun of of direct experience um, to the we collective. Um, shouldn't ever be just multiplying yourself, you know, um, uh, as, as though, um, we many, um, are, are copies of, of, of I. Right. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's related. I, I think probably, I think probably not, you know, when Levinas uses that term, he's, he, I think he's often saying that like in French, Ilia there is, and also in German, es gibt, mm. it gives. Those are both ways to say there is or there are. I mean, it's like it, um, uh, there is snow on the ground, um, il y a neige. Um, so uh, there's, in, there's a way in which there's a kind of giver um, of, of those givens. And who is that? That's Eleity. That's the God. That's, that's whatever okay. thirdness there is. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So you 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 derive it from the grammar. Well, that's... if you're open to reading another piece, I'd love um, to. Uh, let's have you do on foot washing, since it is about reciprocity in a way. Sure. Yeah. On foot washing, permitting shame, error, and guilt. Myself, the single source. Foot washing is a sacrament in Protestant orders that understand the Bible as the Word of God including the old particular Baptists and the primitive Baptists, especially in the Piedmont and Appalachian regions from Pennsylvania to Georgia. In the primitive Baptist churches I grew up in, the ritual was part of an annual communion. After a short sermon or reading from scripture, I think there's a story in which Christ humbles himself to wash the feet even of the apostles who would soon betray him and enjoins others to such humility. The members of the church would rise to sing hymns called out by title or hymnal page number and a procession would begin in an orderly fashion such that sister with sister and brother with brother, a pair would form and a wash basin would be chosen to fill with warm water. With two small white towels, the partners would sit on and kneel before the front pew and alternate soaping and rinsing the feet of the other. It was touching to watch an elder and a younger man exchange the service, lean and muscular, gnarly and horned. Maybe ten basins were in use at a time, and everyone else kept up the singing while the pair worked silently. I sang the lyrics of Palms of Victory or Come Unto Me, watching every grimace and blush on my mother's face with her slender feet in the old woman's hands the last time. A thirteen-year-old knows his single mother's foot, an eight-and-a-half narrow. Back when a naturalizer salesman would bring his shoehorn and ramp stool over to straddle his customer's fitting, 
To wash one's feet independent of the rest of the body, and even to wash the feet of others, was not an unusual act in the time and place Jesus Christ lived, in an economy of hospitality, Greek in origin. He and his friends wore sandals, of course, and customarily the feet were the most unclean part of anyone entering a home, particularly travelers. Was that the function of the first foyer, the anteroom? Odysseus, dressed as the beggar back at Ithaca, was recognized by the scar on his leg when, it, when the old nurse was cleaning his feet. A warm footbath was a welcome, and for a friend to give one to a fellow friend was perhaps a, t a tenderness. Reciprocity was at the heart of it. Not to return the favor was to upset a balance. It may well be that originally the shoe was on the other foot when an erstwhile guest held his former hosts upon, re upon repayment of a visit. Somewhere, Guy Davenport must have an annotated bibliography on the topic, tracking it homosocially through art and literature. In Greek drama, it was even more honorable to wash a horrible foot, a putrid foot. In Philoctetes, the ogre has been exiled on his island on account of a deception rooted in foot disgust. His, his fellow sailors led their wounded, festering compatriot ashore and sneaked back to the boat slip without him, unable any longer to abide the smell of his rank, his rank diseased, accursed foot. But the play concerns a second deception in which a young, honorable man is enlisted by Odysseus to gain Philoctetes' trust, to hear his laments and sympathize, to enter his cave and tolerate the stench, and then snatch the ogre's magic bow when he is seized again predictably by foot pain. Because the young man's sympathy is real, his guile is tested. Nonetheless, he executes the plan and procures the treasured bow for Odysseus in the wings. It is for Philoctetes as though the first betrayal was reopened. Whatever psychic detachment from his own extremity he had managed is annihilated. His relationship with his own living rot, we know then, will only grow more shameful. And Odysseus, elsewhere the revenant hero, Messiah incognito, is here a craven opportunist, whose villainy, equally, is detachment from shame. When my stepfather Frank, in a torrent of spite and fury, humiliates my mother in the company of family or friends, over dinner or in his own hospital room, as he does regularly, relentlessly, set off by her miscomprehension of something or an oversight he has discovered, the room is stunned, shaken. There is nothing like it. Mortification is arresting for everyone present. However nefarious or admirable his other dealings may have been, the great disgrace of his life will have been his terrorism of the one devoted to him. The lasting shame of mine was enduring it by detaching from it. I left when I was 17, five years into their marriage, and I visit as seldom as I feel I can. Frank has had, for five or six years now, a chronic wound on the sole of his right foot, a condition not uncommon to advanced type 2 diabetics like himself. Bones in his feet are gradually crumbling and splaying, and abrasions form. Charcot syndrome. Because of the related impaired circulation and complete localized nerve loss, there is no pain, but there is constant danger of necrosis and toxic shock. The wound on his soul has intermittently wept and cracked and granulated for years, but never closed, despite a number of stimulative water and pressure and debridement treatments, and its inability to heal is the single reason he has been prohibited the kidney transplant for which he arranged a donor long ago, 
but for which he would need to be infection-free during post-operative immunosuppression therapy. The aperture of his wound has varied from dime to half-dollar size, and I have seen it three or four inches deep. Even then, it was frightfully clean, like a throat. My mother cleans it. Every evening, after dinner, after the dishes. She has a kit, a kind of carpet bag, with gloves and sprays and brushes and ointments and individually wrapped antiseptic wipes. He lifts his heavy leg to the butcher block table in their kitchen, and her movements are quicker and rougher than you might imagine, though her concentration is intense. She wipes the gullet of it and the rim. She gets it to granulate. After 25 years of marriage, she knows this part of his body best. He hasn't ever really seen it. Often, during, feeling nothing, he watches television. You've been listening to Brian Blanchfield read from Proxies. You, in a conversation with Eileen Miles, uh, have a conversation about um, when to exit a poem. And she talks about how she likes, likens it to going to a party and leaving at the first thought of leaving, not lingering to see whether mm -hmm. you should still stay, mm -hmm. but at the first even possibility that you might want to leave, yeah. that's when you leave a poem. Yeah. And that's when you leave a party. And Somebody I was, just told me that was the Irish exit. Is it? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but that's that, without goodbye. I, I was wondering how you know when, when these essays are, are done. Mm -hmm. if, if you felt like there was a, a feeling or a, a place that you arrive at. Um, yeah, for sure, it's it's not any sense of um, of having comprehensively treated the the, the topic. Um, I don't think any of these essays are comprehensive um, examinations of 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 their subject matter. I think it. Yeah, I think it's. I think it's a feel. I think um, um, each one is attuned to a different. Uh, a different sort of finality um, or break at the end. Um, this particular essay felt um, like it needed to end still in the, the narrative of that little episode and not recur um, to any um, turning the material earlier. Mm -hmm. um, that would have been um, that would have lessened the impact, and it would not have not have it wouldn't have. Um, uh, it wouldn't have, have arrived in the same way yeah. for me. She also talks about literary family making, and I'm just going to use that as a as an awkward segue to mm. doing a plug for your radio show because I'm super addicted to Speedway and Swan. Thank and you. it feels like this great act of literary family making, both learning about a new poet that you co-host with, but then all of those poets, old and new, that you guys read on that show. It's incredible. Thank you. And I think everybody should listen to the show, Speedway and Swan. Speedway and Swan. Yeah. Well, thanks a lot, David. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I like, I like thinking of it as a, as a kind of ever expanding family. Um, I give the co the guest co-host a, a kind of prompt to bring in five or 10 poems that matter yeah. to him or her, um, from any era, um, old or new, any style. Um, and then I bring in things from the new shelves at the, at the poetry center where I work right. at the university of Arizona. And, and then we drop in music in between. Yeah. With some great weird songs like the, um, persuasion singing the grateful dead or like, <laughs> um, 
Richard Thompson singing Britney Spears. Oh, that's so good. Those, they're yeah. great. I mean, it might yeah. sound horrible to people, but they're really they're pretty They're great delightful. covers, both of those. Yeah. yeah. I'm kind of addicted to cover songs. Yeah, I noticed that that, that reoccurs. Yeah. Um, well, tell us tell us what your, your, what's next for you. Mm-hmm. What can we expect from Brian Blanchfield on the horizon? Um, that's a good question. And I, congratulations on your Whiting Award. Thank you. Thank you. So, so that happened last week in, in New York. And for the next month or so, I'm reading around the country. Um, uh, and when I get back to Tucson in the summer, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be writing again this summer. I feel far from it, I'm tragically far. Nonfiction or poetry? Well, I have... Um, I have, uh, happily, I have, I have a grant um, for the next uh, poetry project that, I, that I'm working on, which is um, loosely, tentatively, provisionally called Piedmont. Um, I live in Tucson, which is the Tohono O'odham word for foot of the mountain, mm. and I grew up in the central Piedmont. Mm. And there's this a project of poems that's kind of compelled by that very simple symmetry. Um, so that's, that's what I'm working on now. But for sure... Um, nonfiction isn't done with me. Um, the, the last essays in this book stretched to 10, 11, 12 pages. And, and it was a, it was an effort to kind of contain what I was learning about longer forms in, in essaying and in narrative. And, and I've been reading a lot of uh, James Baldwin again, and and I, I love the 40, 50, 60 page essay form. Mm -hmm. And that's something I'm, I'm interested in. I won't say much yet about um, about the subject matter um, because um, it's still really provisional for me. But yeah, but those are the two next book projects I'm, I'm thinking about. Well, it's great having you on the show, David. It's wonderful. Yeah. I I love the show, and, and this has been so much fun. Thank you. We're talking today to poet and essayist Brian Blanchfield about his latest book, Proxies: Essays Near Knowing. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. If you enjoyed today's program, consider supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash between the covers. And also while you're there, check out the growing archive of bonus material available. Thanks for listening.